From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. Today, we're going to be speaking with Mike Muldoon, who's the head of business development for the UK and Ireland at Alstom Transport. As always, I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts. Here in the studio is Patrick Malloy. Patrick, how are we doing? Hey, Andrew. Well, did, did you like that? And we got Chris on the line from London. Chris, how are you? Hey, hey. Well, guys, uh, so it's been a while since we've recorded together. Uh, last time we were all hanging out together was in uh, Whistler, Canada for EVS Whistler. And uh, wanted to get your guys' take on that. How was it uh, hosting panels on hydrogen in Canada? So firstly, a big thank you to Inspiratio for um, for having us. As, as listeners know, Inspiratio very kindly hosts this podcast and uh, they've done a lot of work to help us uh, with this project. So it's great to give back to them and to go and meet some of the people that are working with them. Shame about the lack of snow in Whistler, but to be honest, actually, it was fantastic to have um, a lot of people, especially from North America, come in and talk about what's happening on the EV uh, side, as well as touching on some of the hygiene issues. I think um, it's quite easy sometimes in the clean technology world to kind of live in a bubble around your specific segment of technology and sometimes the segment within a segment within a segment. I had a nice turn of phrase from a company today that's been working in the fuel cell world for 20 years where they said uh, the best way of thinking about it is a cottage industry where everyone wants separate rooms. Um, and so sometimes uh, we can be quite insular. And so it's quite nice to actually just get out and listen to, you know, the wider world instead of just reading an article about, oh, well, grid constraints mean it's never going to work for EV charging. Actually listening to people say, well, we understand that, but this is how we're getting around it. And this is how we're thinking about it and addressing it. So that was great. And we were spoiled. We had uh, Nicholas Pockard from Ballard, who very kindly, as our listeners might know, was the first guest we had on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. Uh, we have Marilyn from Black and Beach, who's fantastic and who we're going to have on the show um, in the new year, talking a little bit about what they've been doing to install hydrogen refueling systems. Uh, and then we also had um, HTech, who, uh, as of today, I think, have just built their second hydrogen refueling station in, in Canada. So that's fantastic. And they're doing a lot of work there with Shell to build some of the hydrogen refueling infrastructure. So generally a really, really positive discussion. And of course, uh, my our famous partner in crime, Patrick, as well, uh, giving us a dose of reality and uh, policy insights. He's trying to be humble over here, saying he didn't he didn't moderate any panels, but uh, I'm fairly certain I have uh, documentary evidence of that. Just merely saying I didn't moderate a panel on hydrogen. Very technical, I suppose. No, it was fantastic. To echo echo exactly what Chris said, you know, we got to talk to a whole host of people dealing with some of the challenges of moving zero carbon transport solutions forward in really cool and innovative ways, and um, obviously. There's an awful lot of kind of, or the focus of what we do is is hydrogen here, right? But like talking to the EV charging folks, talking to investors who are looking at these these problems, getting the high level overview of how they conceptualize the markets moving or being uh, kind of disrupted is incredibly valuable, incredibly interesting. And yeah, thanks thanks to Andrew and the rest of the Inspiration team for uh, for making it happen. Well, I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, we had the lovely support of our of our sponsor with that with EVS Whistler at Black and & Veatch, and uh, we'll be hearing from them uh, in a couple of weeks as well about what kind of work they're doing in hydrogen. And that was uh, that was great to have them along. 
Uh, but I understand you guys, Chris, did you uh, get a free ride in a uh, brand new Toyota Mirai while we were there? I uh, didn't get a ride in, um, but uh, no, got to see it, which was fantastic. So nice to go in there and have a little look around, work in progress. To... You can admire from afar, huh? No, I mean, mind you, the latest uh, person to buy a Toyota Mirai is uh, Jane May from um, Top Gear who did a rather nice YouTube reveal. So maybe I'll have to, as, as someone who's a bit nearer to home than Vancouver, maybe I can uh, see if we can tempt him to talk about his car at some point or, or get for, go for a ride with him and see what he makes of it. Sounds like a plan. All right, so Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the background of Alstom and, and why we're speaking with them today. We're speaking today to Mike Muldoon, who's the head of business development for Alstom in the UK and Ireland. Uh, Alstom are an interesting company, um, well known for a no- number of uh, reasons. Large industrial company that makes a variety of uh, different technologies, um, specifically very active in the rail sector. Um, the reason we're talking to them today is um, that Alstom have the world's first uh, hydrogen fuel cell powered train system, the Coradia Eilint. Um, there are two of them currently running in Germany, and it's been making a lot of noise. Uh, and it's been making a lot of noise mainly because it's a working and proven example of where hydrogen and fuel cells can actually provide a serious decarbonization uh, alternative to diesel and to other fossil solutions. Um, And I think that's why it's been really interesting. It's also interesting because it it has catalyzed a number of people uh, in different countries to turn around and go, wait, this is actually doable. This is feasible. These trains run and they're reliable. We should be looking at it too. And so there's now, seven, I think it's six or seven countries now that are considering hydrogen trains. So I think today, really, we're going to just get a sense of a bit of the backstory about the units, kind of what the appeal was behind it, um, getting Mike to talk a little bit about where they see sort of future opportunities and some of the technical challenges they've had around the rail space. I mean, as Patrick knows, um, heavy duty mobility really is a sweet spot and is really drawing a lot of attention in the hydrogen world today. And in some senses, what Alstom is doing with the Coralia Island is one of the best examples of that. All right, great. Well, let's get Mike on the line. Hello. Hi, Mike. This is Andrew Leadham. How are you doing? I'm oh, very well, thank you. And you? Great, great. I've also got uh, Patrick Malloy and Chris Jackson on the line with us. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? So, Mike, uh, for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind telling them a little bit about Alstom and what you guys are doing in the UK and uh, and your guys' operations and a bit of history about the about the company. So, uh, Alstom is a, a French-owned global company. We specialize in um, transport systems, predominantly rail-based, and we can provide any element of the rail system from the track through to the trains, the electrification, the power supplies, uh, the, the complete turnkey operation for a railway. From that point of view, we are um, very much oriented towards sustainable mobility. And our, our current strap line is, is mobility by nature. And I think that's actually very fitting for the current zeitgeist that we find ourselves in at the moment. And it fits very well also with the, with the fact that we are developing some world-leading technologies in the sustainable area. Great. As we are aware, uh, Alstom is the first company to deliver a fully operational hydrogen-powered train with two trains operational in Germany. Could you tell us why did Alstom decide to enter into this market in 2016, and what have been the main lessons since then? Right. Uh, We we didn't decide to enter the market in 2016. Actually, we we had to make that decision some years earlier, um, which actually shows quite a good level of insight, I, I suppose, amongst our colleagues we were looking at what would be the future for 
mobility? Where would we see the trends going in the rail sector? And how could we best position ourselves to be able to deliver what we foresaw as being the future product requirements? The thing that we identified was that we could foresee a problem emerging around emissions, around carbon dioxide, and around diesel in particular. And diesel is a very popular uh, energy store used on the railways around the world. So we had to really start to think about what could we do to address that and be positioned to, to give customers alternatives uh, in the future. So we, took that, we started forming that view in about 2012, and it took us a good three or four years to develop from the point of view of deciding that we needed an alternative to actually demonstrating something, uh, actually exhibiting the train in 2016, which is what we did. It took another two years of final approvals, testing, and, dare I say, persuasion to get it fully authorized to operate on the railways in Germany. And in September of last year, 2018, it entered service and has been running in-passenger service on a daily basis ever since. So that was obviously a six- to seven-year process that I've just briefly described. Over that time, you do learn an awful lot. And I guess the first thing we learned was that we could use hydrogen. We hadn't originally set out with a technology solution looking for a problem. We wanted to find a, a solution to this problem. So if you evaluate what are the options for carrying your energy with you, because that's really what we need to do with these trains, you need to really be looking at hydrogen or batteries. Alstom also produces electrification systems for railways. We have the full range of possible solutions to decarbonize a railway, but in certain circumstances that isn't appropriate. There will always be trains that need to be self-powered, and therefore they need to carry their energy with them. So we looked at it and we thought, right, okay, what can we do with a battery? Uh, and what can we do with hydrogen? Um, ultimately, what we concluded was we could do a lot more with hydrogen than we could with a battery. We need to move a train that's in excess of 100 tonnes, um, and to do so takes quite a lot of energy, quite a lot of power in particular to accelerate. Once you're up and running, it's a bit easier, but the kind of uh, loads that we were demanding were not really something that we found a battery was able to provide. And in fact, our initial calculations suggested a battery might need to be around about 33 tonnes in weight to provide the necessary energy storage that we required. Of course, you're into diminishing returns then because the more the battery weighs, the more power you need to move it, the more power you need, the greater the battery becomes. So slowly but steadily, you defeat yourself. Um, we also had a problem then with space and getting people on the train, which was obviously a bit of a, a concern. So we, we moved on and we, we evaluated hydrogen as, as our energy store. And we felt that actually that gave us a much better chance of achieving our objective. It's not all about how you store your energy though. What is crucial in, in any of these circumstances is energy efficiency. So we, we also discovered that, that it was key to preserve as much uh, or to use the energy as, as well as we could and, and to recover as much of it as we could as well. So having just said a large battery didn't fit our needs, we actually determined that a small battery supplementing the hydrogen fuel cells was a very complementary package. So we actually started to develop a hybrid traction system which uses the, the fuel cell and the battery at certain times together to provide the power necessary to accelerate the train but can then use the battery to reclaim some of that energy used uh, when the train slows down and then reuse it when it accelerates again so that you optimize your use of energy 
you maximize your range and you reduce the amount of hydrogen you need to carry, which all helps with the packaging of the equipment on the train. Just jumping in on that, just to clarify, that's regenerative braking that you're talking about, which is feeding back into the battery to improve the overall efficiency, correct? Correct. Yep. Absolutely Sorry. right. Okay. Regenerative braking is a, is a major contributor to the uh, overall energy production on board the train, but the fuel cell is the primary source of electricity. The name of the train itself, the Caradia Island, um, derives from the Caradia Lint that the train is based on. The Lint is a diesel train. But the letter I stands for intelligent, and intelligent is what we had to make the power and energy management systems on board the train in order that they could optimize the use of this energy and determine where do we draw the power from as the train travels the route. Should we be using more fuel cell energy? Should we deplete the battery? Should we be charging the battery? How do we prepare the train for its route? So it knows where it is. It knows what, what the topography of the route is, if it's going to be climbing hills or, or descending. It knows from onboard sensors how many people are on board the train. Um, it also obviously can detect loads such as heating and air conditioning and other things that are perhaps using power. So from that point of view, the, the intelligent systems on board the train are all configured to optimize and reduce the wastage of energy uh, and make sure that we can always deliver the fundamental service the train is there to provide. And, and this isn't like um, some of the issues you, want, you might experience with determining whether you can, you know, whether your phone will last the rest of the day on the battery charge it has. We don't have, we can't have train operators trying to guess whether their train will last for a day's service. They need to know and they need to be certain. So we have to make sure that the systems on board guarantee the minimum range that we are able to commit for the product. So again, more aspects that you learn going through this, the need for, the you've got to get rid of range anxiety, you need range certainty, you need performance certainty, and you need to be very sure that the, the, the systems on board the train are able to uh, react and manage their own circumstances, complementing the actions of the driver and the train operation. And then I suppose the thing that we, we haven't necessarily learned, but the thing that pleased us about all of this is that we got to the place where we found ourselves quite some way in the lead. Um, we naturally assumed others would be developing similar technologies and, and um, be in a similar place in the market. But actually our trains now, as I say, have been operating for, what, um, 15 months, uh, and, and there are no other competitors in the market at the present time. So that's um, we, we know for sure that others are following. It's not that we've gone down the wrong path but it is something that we're very pleased about uh, in, in, in bringing this thing to, to market. So, so following on from, from being in the lead, in 2019, you've secured a 500 million euro contract for 27 fuel cell trains in Germany. Uh, I, guess, I guess the question is, what, what other markets do you anticipate will be making those sort of investments in the next few years? And are, are you ready for it? Um, we, we are. Yes, we're certainly ready for it. I would say initially, I think we were a little bit overwhelmed by the level of interest that the train generated. We exhibited it in 2016, and the level of interest globally was phenomenal. Many countries, we had interest from five continents. We've got a huge range of countries and territories and rail operators within them requesting information, wanting demonstrations or otherwise contemplating their own procurement processes and how they might look at adopting this technology. So it's certainly been an area that has shown huge interest. And we've had to 
step up to to address that. Um, I think it was more than we expected at the outset. So um, that's very encouraging aspect to the overall market. In Germany, actually, that um, contract for 27 trains is the second contract. The first contract was for 14 trains. So we have total 41 uh, already ordered, um, and we continue to bid the, the product in Germany, uh, in the various of the, the sort of regional um, states in the, in the Federal Republic of Germany. We are working with SNCF in France um, and with other operators that, that I'm not at liberty to name, but that they are quite numerous. So there's a lot going on, and, and not least here in the UK. We here are looking at a conversion of, a, of an existing train to run on hydrogen, and that will be uh, that's a concept we're working on with a company called Eversholt Rail, uh, and we're looking at converting what are called Class 321 trains into hydrogen trains that we have christened Breeze. Um, we think that they will offer the ideal way to start the transition away from diesel in the UK and start to sort of grow awareness and uh, both both at passenger level, operator level, industry and sort of political levels across the country of, of what is possible and, and how we can start to uh, make sure we avoid uh, operation for much longer of, of sort of polluting diesel trains. Yeah, I think one of the things that also is uh, interesting for a lot of people is trying to get their heads around some of the infrastructure elements of this, because it, I guess in a very simple layperson's terms, at least a railway track, I suppose, you know, you, there are arguably, uh, it's somewhat easier to think about where you probably would put refueling in. Um, but that's simply because there is that sort of mentality doesn't mean that it's obvious how you actually supply large amounts of hydrogen on site and do so in a safe and convenient way for trains. Um, certainly trucks and shipping have found it quite difficult to do sort of uh, large volumes of hydrogen refueling. So maybe you can talk a little bit to how Alstom's been able to address some of those challenges around how do you actually build hydrogen infrastructure for supplying, refueling, and pressurizing at scale in the volume that's needed for an operation like a train? Right. Well, it's a good question. I think that the, the way that we have to do this uh, will change over time. Where we are today, there is very little hydrogen infrastructure in many of the countries and many of the areas that are interested in adopting the technology. So we have to look at introducing with the trains the ability to fuel them at the same time. That sounds quite daunting right now, but back in 1948, when the first diesel trains entered operation in Britain, they faced exactly the same challenge. Where the trains went, the fuel had to follow. And so we don't think it's, it's, it's insurmountable in any way, but you do need to be able to look at technologies for local production and look at also what they entail in terms of emissions and other constraints. The beauty of trains is that we know exactly where they're going to go, we know exactly when they're going to do it, and we know the frequency that they will do it. So we're able to predict how much fuel they're going to use. We know where we can refuel them. We can program them all to be refueled in a certain place at a certain time. So they're a very manageable system. And the train timetable means that we're able to say to fueling partners, we're going to need two, three, four tonnes of hydrogen per day at this location. We're going to need it every day, 364 days a year. We don't do Christmas Day. And we're going to need it for the next 10 years. That's quite an interesting proposition to anyone who's going to in, uh, invest in the production of hydrogen. And this is all part of what we have to address in introducing these trains. It is a system introduction, and it's a collaboration between different partners. 
So we need to introduce the expertise of the gas companies and the gas suppliers, uh, be they either new entrants or, or familiar faces around the world. We have to work with them to adopt the best way. In due course, hopefully, and, and probably reasonably, we can expect to see quite a lot of large-scale hydrogen gas distribution, um, particularly in the UK. It's, it's very much a, a widely discussed prospect to replace our extensive natural gas network with hydrogen. Well, clearly that would make life a lot more straightforward. In the meantime, what we're looking at ranges from the production of or, or the, the siting of an electrolyzer plant actually in or around the train depot, able to produce and store sufficient hydrogen to keep the fleets operational. Or we're also looking at other schemes where locally or reasonably locally produced hydrogen can be transported to the railway depot and made available to the trains. We operate at 350 bar, which is the sort of commercial vehicle standard pressure. So we're not out of, out of the ordinary in terms of our requirements, but we do require more hydrogen than most other people at the moment will tend to ask you for. I just wanted to follow on, on that. I mean, at 350 bar, I, from what I had read, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, an Alstom train is taking somewhere between 60 to 100 kilos of hydrogen as a, um, per sort of leg, as it were. And so I was wondering, at 350 bar, how long does it actually take to refuel one of those trains? So the the various trains, the, the Karadia Islands holds somewhere over 200 kilograms per uh, per train. We fully expect, well, we know the fueling time of the train is about 15 minutes. Um, our intention with the UK concept train, the Breeze, is that that will contain around about 400 kilograms, but it is, it is fueled from two locations, so the filling duration is broadly similar. One of the design remits, we set ourselves was to ensure that we're able to actually match diesel refueling times. We want to try and make the transition for operators as smooth and easy for them as possible. One of the things that any train operator now today operating diesels has to address is refueling their trains. So if the refueling of the new train is, is a very, very similar process in terms of you attach, a, you attach essentially a hose to the train, you deliver the fuel via the hose and you disconnect it, and it takes the same amount of time as it did with the old fuel, as it does with the new, really you're, you're making it as smooth a transition as you possibly can. And so for us, that was part of our design brief. Um, and certainly at, at 350 bar with the type of volumes we're talking, that, that all of our testing so far and our operations in Germany suggest that's entirely uh, achievable. So, Mike, tangenting, I think, a, a touch, you know, we've seen an, a number of countries re recently announce kind of plans for hydrogen trams and, and various other kinds of uh, rail mobility. I'm just wondering, is, is that a, a target for, for Alstom or are you guys going to focus particularly on freight and high-speed rail? This is an interesting one. So, as I mentioned earlier, decarbonizing the railways is about a portfolio of solutions. And the phrase we'd always use in England is horses for courses. We need to get the right technology for the right application. So the Karadia Island is what we call a regional train. That means it doesn't operate at particularly high speed, up to about 100 miles an hour, 160 kilometers an hour. Um, and it oper it's, it's designed to operate on, on the less intensively used routes of the railway. Now, there are significant distances covered by trains of that type in Britain and in Europe and across the world. The less illustrious and the less prestigious rail services, perhaps compared to some of the, the more famous uh, high-speed routes, 
but they provide an essential service in the community and looking forward they're going to become ever more important as, as personal transportation has to be decarbonised. So we want to encourage people to adopt travelling on those trains. So if that's the regional train, that's where the hydrogen performance fits particularly well. We can carry enough energy with us to deliver the full day service. We've got the speed that's necessary. We can, we can better the acceleration of the diesel trains. We have a perfect package for the regional train. If you want to look at high speed, as many are more expert than me, but we'll be able to tell you that the faster you go, the exponentially grows your energy requirement. You need ever more energy to get to increase the speed of the train. And, and that's why typically across the world, high speed routes are electrified. It's a very, very efficient way of delivering energy to the train. And also, you only really have high-speed routes where you have high demand and you have revenue streams that justify the implementation of electrification. So they complement each other. So there's a technology there that can provide the spine of the railway through electrification at high speed. You've then got the hydrogen trains that can, that can feed the passengers to and from the stations along the spine. And you're starting to build up that network of transport systems or transport modes that gets people from their home to their office or to their destination, whatever that may be, without them ever needing to do any form of, of car driving or anything else. And trams, of course, fit into that same mix. They are typically city-based, obviously, or, or conurbation-serving, and they operate within the built-up environment. We actually, at Alstom, we have a huge range of tram power supply options. We are a world leader in the supply of trams uh, and tram systems and most of those systems use either, some of them use overhead catenary, some of them are catenary less, so we have tracks in the, in the road that supply energy, we can charge them at individual stops um, and use batteries or supercapacitors to move what are very short distances between stops. It's not necessarily relevant to apply hydrogen in that sector. Not to say we won't and not to say that others shouldn't, but there are a huge range of options there. The beauty of the hydrogen for the regional trains and the reason we picked it was that we really couldn't find an alternative solution. We're not here to say hydrogen is the silver bullet that fixes every requirement for the rail sector. It's part of the arsenal. It's part of what we need to do in order to offer a complete suite of options to, to decarbonise rail going forward. I guess um, you, you started, uh, or one of the earlier points that you, you made was the fact that the current train, the island, is sort of built off an existing Karadia model, which, as I think you articulated, was a diesel model. Um, I guess one of the things that we've seen, you again spoke about some of the projects in the UK, um, a lot of these sort of first-generation hydrogen train projects, and even also we're seeing on the trucking side, tend to be uh, somewhat adapted from other technical solutions. So even the Nikola trucks are sort of adapted from compressed natural gas systems where they've kind of then adjusted them. So I, I guess I wanted to ask, were there some limitations and were there some challenges in effectively ad adapting a diesel train across to hydrogen? And then given that this has been so successful and there has been so much interest around what you guys have done, um, is there sort of plans underway for a pure hydrogen-only model um, built from the ground up to be a hydrogen system? And, and what does that necessarily mean in terms of efficiency and how that will perform differently to what you currently are offering the market? So converting anything is obviously uh, a series of, of compromise decisions that you have to make. But it's the logical place to start. 
with the implementation and delivery of a new technology. It minimizes the cost of the initial development. It means you focus just on the new technology, not on the complete product. And therefore, you can try and keep the cost of making the change as low and, and affordable as possible. And that's why the solution, the, the Karate Island, is based on the Lint, because it was a, a suitable platform to develop. And that's why in the UK we're using the class 321. Again, it lends itself to that conversion. In The, the breeze will be um, an adaptation of an existing train. In the longer term, as these products develop the network for hydrogen, there will clearly be an opportunity in the future to develop specific products. Uh, but for the time being, the challenge is to create the conditions that might lead to that being viable. Uh, it's an economic question as much as it is a technological question. And we well know that um, in all of our markets, um, people are not seeking to spend as much as possible. They're seeking to do as much as possible. So we have to find the right compromise for them uh, to do that. And certainly for the time being, we strongly believe that, that conversion is the way to go. And from that conversion process and from the deployment of those trains, we will all learn lessons and we will all determine then what are the design criteria for those future bespoke products. And I guess, like you say, we've seen it in the truck market, we've seen it in the car market with Hyundai's move from a converted car to, to the Nexo and, and you know, the evolution of the Mirai. It's the natural process, but it takes time and you've got to, you've got to get that market started. I just wanted to follow up on developing the markets going forward, Mike, and uh, get your guys' view on how public policy factors into this equation of developing uh, the hydrogen train market. Where do you guys see uh, the, the most uh, room for improvement? What kind of policy features do you guys think are most effective in rolling out uh, this kind of infrastructure? Well, we've seen in the UK rail sector, we were challenged by uh, the then rail minister, Joe Johnson, to propose as an industry our plan to decarbonize rail in the UK. And in that challenge, he set us the objective of removing diesel trains from 2040. That's quite a good illustration of an output policy that government wants to see that allows us then as an industry to respond and to start to invest with some degree of confidence that what we are developing will have a market. And of course, any business anywhere in the world looking to develop new products wants to be certain it's got the opportunity to actually sell them. So what policy can do is create the market conditions that allows industry like Alstom and our competitors and any sector to respond in innovative and uh, creative way to a challenge. We don't want to be told that everything should be done in a particular way. We don't want, we don't want to be told every train should be hydrogen even. What we want to be told is, what's the end goal we're trying to achieve here? If the objective is to get rid of diesels from the UK rail network, if the objective is to hit zero emissions by 2050, as it is for the, for the UK nation, net zero by 2050, then we absolutely need those policies to be clear, explicit, and stable going forward. And then we can work towards them. And then the next aspect we can start to look at then is building commercial business cases around the value of achieving those targets. Because... Without them being there, there is no incentive for customers to improve. And I think that is the crucial input that government can make. It's setting the framework that the rest of us 
need to deliver. We see it in the automotive sector with the incremental improvement in emissions driven solely by legislation. There's no way that the automotive sector would be cleaning itself up if it wasn't compelled to do so because you and I as customers will probably carry on buying cars anyway, ignorant of their, perhaps ignorant of their um, impact or perhaps not caring about their impact as long as we can get a cheap car. Going forward, we all have to be steered, and that's the role of policy, and that's the role for governments looking ahead now. What can we do to make sure we achieve the targets? And let's just be clear what those targets are. Excellent. Well, I think on that note, uh, time is drawing short, and we promised you a half an hour, Mike, so uh, we won't keep you much longer than we, we had asked you for. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and it was wonderful speaking with you, and we hope you'll come back and join us again soon in 2020. Love to. Thank you very much. So initial thoughts. This is very, very cool, I think. Um, and in part, I think the reason I'm I'm kind of enthused by it is, you know, Mike laid out a pretty clear kind of structure around kind of how various systems and technologies in the, the kind of the train kind of and kind of urban mobility right in respect of trams, but how that infrastructure uses multiple different technologies for different use cases. I think it all kind of stands up pretty, pretty solidly and yeah, like like this sounds like it's a, a really, really good and viable way to remove diesel from from train infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think it's probably true. I think what's also fascinating, and you know, we've talked about it before, and I've written about it on um, on LinkedIn, is is this fact that people keep portraying batteries and fuel cells as enemies. And I think exactly as Mike points out, actually one of the big value adds is when they work together. You know, I think he was talking about a weight of thirty-eight tons. I think was the number he was saying for a pure battery-based solution. Thirty-three. Um, you know, it clearly doesn't. Sorry, thirty-three. <laughs> Andrew, is that right? Yeah. No, 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 no. I, 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 I don't mean to be picky. I actually wanted no, you're to. Right. I wanted to underline, and and that was the exact same point I was going to make. Is I thought uh, Mike's comments were excellent in bringing forth, without even being prompted by me to defend batteries, uh, how complementary <laughs> the technologies can be and how they can work together. Uh, I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and I think the key also that people is worth adding here is you know the regenerative braking really does add a huge amount to the efficiency piece. I mean, I I think when someone was talking to me about the Hyundai, also the Toyota Mirai, and even the Nexo, I think regenerative braking adds something like five to ten percent on the total efficiency of the system. So it is actually fairly significant, and I can imagine on a train as well where you're, you know, you've got such a huge weight behind you moving a momentum that regenerative braking probably is even more dramatic for that kind of frame than it would be for a light duty vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like I was going to say t- tangentially, like I think one of the other kind of follow-on points that that probably links back to this in in a way, I think it was three tons a day or three or f- three to four tons a day. He overall kind of suggested was the consumption per per train. That volume over the course of you know, it, particularly in Europe, obviously in the UK as well, with the the kind of the built-out nature of the the rail infrastructure. This is a real driver for actual hydrogen production and growth, right? That's you know the demand side is is pretty substantial, and therefore we to to kind of ramp up the the supply. But yeah, like I, I didn't even think that the the regenerative braking aspect would probably accelerate uh, kind of in in impact by virtue of the the weight behind it on the train. That's a fair, very fair point. Yeah, and I think what's also fascinating to talk about all of this is the fact that you know this is the first iteration, right? 
I mean, you know, he's talking about 350 bar pressurized hydrogen, which is relatively low considering cars are now sort of 700 bar. Um, you know, in some senses, it's kind of the lowest lowest barrier to entry. He's also talking about a model, the Karate Island, which is was explained is a retrofit from a diesel system. And so it hasn't been built entirely optimized from the very beginning design to run on hydrogen, even though, as he mentions, they've incorporated a whole ton of intelligent elements in. So what's also fascinating to me is actually to say, this is already what's capable of being of you know delivering on an existing frame and then actually thinking well if we custom built the system to run completely from the very beginning the whole idea of the model was to be hydrogen based what further efficiencies and further optimization you can get from that i think that also is really exciting i didn't really have any follow-up question (laughs) on that Uh, but maybe i missed this guys are there companies out there that are supplying the refueling structure for a company for hydrogen trains on a commercialized basis or is this our companies like Alstom forced to build these do these on a custom case-by-case basis so as far as i understand and patrick please mm-hmm. correct me if i'm wrong on this one so I, I i i'm pretty certain that for the karadia island trains that are running in germany today um it's uh, hydrogen from reformed natural gas that they're using and I believe that's coming from a gas supplier that is basically doing the logistics for them. So it's not Alstom that's handling it. It's a, it's a gas company. I, I can't remember which one specifically. Patrick, I don't know if you know. I, I don't know the specific supplier, to be, to be frank. But I, I, I would have thought it would be, you know, one of the, the large industrial gases companies because, you know, this is their business, right? So while the the market's a little a little early in terms of supply, those are the the actors probably best place. Unless unless indeed there are you know folks in the general kind of gas provision markets who are the natural gas provision markets who are trialing stuff uh, at this stage. But I think it's a great question to ask, which is to talk about what happens with the logistics going forward on this. And you know, um, it, it's interesting. I know, for example, in the UK context that. Uh, it, it's a discussion we had, uh, my company Proteam, have been having with a few people around, well, you know, how do you, if you already have certain obvious infrastructure elements that are going to move first on hydrogen, um, how do you build an infrastructure? Can you piggyback off that? So if you know that you're going to convert a regional train line across to hydrogen and you know, um, as was really well articulated by Mike, that it's a fairly predictable demand profile. You know how far these trains are running every day. You know how much they're going to need every day. You know when they're going to refuel. Um, that actually is a really nice, stable off-taker that you can then model uh, a potential asset around. Uh, and once you have that, actually the ability to then build further follow-on projects and then to work from that basis is really appealing. So I guess that's the other really exciting element is that, you know, once you have these sort of first anchor uh, projects or developments, especially because trains are at scale, they're consuming large amounts of hydrogen, there's also the whole infrastructure implications of what happens after that. You know, what tends to be near train lines and near train depots? Well, typically warehousing, right? And warehousing has all sorts of things that could require hydrogen. I mean, we talked to Jigga Shah on the last episode about plug power. You know, there's a whole ton of material handling elements that you could clearly see hydrogen playing a role in you then have certain fleet requirements that will go around the site again that suddenly becomes easier to do because you've already got hydrogen capabilities on base and you can see it starting to roll off from that and that is also really exciting and obviously that's not alstom's bread and butter business but equally it is potentially an application that comes off the back of what they're doing which i think is really exciting yeah and and to just piggyback exactly on that point if you look at kind of heavy industries typically they manufacturing bases you know if 
particularly things like steel mills and, and kind of various other kind of heavy manufacturing groups, they typically have a rail link, at least very proximate. Uh, a lot of mines would similarly have rail links. And, and that build out of that market potentially has, and I think this is the point you're making, Chris, like it potentially builds the spine of the infrastructure required for a, a larger rollout, which is in and of itself a very exciting prospect. Yeah, and Mike mentioned, guys, that uh, Alstom is not the only one in the game here, that there are other companies out there doing hydrogen rail, hydrogen trains. Do you guys know who those are? Do you guys know of any other notable projects outside of what Alstom's doing in Germany and, and its expansion? I mean, the only the other one I can think of in the UK is, um, so, I mean, he mentioned uh, that they're working on a train project called Breeze. There is another project um, that's being done by a leasing company called Porterbrook. Um, that are that are also looking at some hydrogen trains in the UK, where again it would be a retrofit-based solution. Um, I know that there are Chinese and Japanese companies that are both looking at hydrogen trains. I, I don't know specifically that they've actually bought anything to market yet. It's interesting also to mention trams because there are hydrogen trams. There's one running in China that I think has been running since 2017. And Russia recently, Fuel Cell Works announced that there was a hydrogen tram that was running in Russia relatively recently. So I don't know the companies buying those, but I'm pretty sure they're not Alstom ones. So again, I think those are local companies involved. Yeah, and there's there's a few in the US um, recently awarded, I think, I think it's Stadler in California somewhere as well there's been a few awards in those kind of lower kind of uh, capacity kind of tram sized i guess trains so yeah this this market's moving emerging and it seems like a good use case yeah well that's it from us at the everything about hydrogen podcast uh, special thanks to Mike Weldoon from Alstom for his time and for his fantastic comments. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to get in touch, uh, you can tweet us at everything about hydrogen or you can email us at podcasts at We hope you have a great 2020 and that you'll stay with us for the next show.